Well, one of the marks of a healthy church is a, a genuine humility among its members. And uh, one of the ways that a humility will work itself out is in the interests of others, and seeking the interests of others and not merely your own. In our time of prayer before the service, at our prayer meeting uh, this morning, we read through Philippians chapter 2 that spoke about just the, um, the humility of mind that a church needs to have. When Paul said, In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And I know as a pastor of a church, I do not believe that I'm exempt from that command. With humility of mind, I need to look out to your interests rather than my own interests. In many ways, this needs to be one of my chief characteristics as a shepherd of the flock of God, right? You think about the concern of the the shepherd is for the sheep. And Jesus has said that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, it's not the easiest thing to do. In fact, it's, it's very difficult. And like you, my heart is filled with pride. I see it, and I'm praying to see it more. That it might be conformed to His image through repentance. Others have pointed out in me, and I acknowledge that. But, but I need to see ways in which it manifests itself that I might repent from those things. Because one of the ways that pride works itself out is I tend to think that my ways are best. I think the church is best off when it follows my advice. And yet, you know what? The church isn't about me. It's not about Steve Brandon. Who's it about? It's about Jesus Christ, right? So this morning, I want to do something humbling for me. It's acknowledging that my plan is not the best. So most of you know, since the beginning of 2006, I've been attempting to preach the entire Bible. Distributed Bible reading plans to all of you. And uh, I've encouraged you to make an effort to read through the Bible. And each week we have the opportunity of going through like massive portions of Scripture. As a result, we've been going pretty fast through Scriptures. And yet over the past several weeks, I've had some discussions with Gordy Bell about this approach. And without getting into all the details, let me simply say that we've come to the conclusion Rock Valley Bible Church should return to going through passages a bit more slowly. And rather than waiting until 2007 to get back to an in-depth, verse-by-verse approach to the Scripture, we're going to begin this morning afresh again and abandon our plan of going through the whole Bible. And I think it's it's an issue of pride with me. I was talking to my daughter, Carissa, about thinking about doing this. And she said, but Dad, you promised! And how many times you promise something to your child and then yet you evaluate later and you say, maybe this isn't the best thing for us at this time. And so in humility, I would encourage all of you to say, well, I'm sorry, confess that you had every intention of keeping that, but it's not the best. And so for the next three weeks, beginning today, we'll be looking in depth at Isaiah chapter 52 and chapter 53. I've chosen this passage just as we think about approaching Easter. It's going to take us through the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and even the resurrection of Jesus. We'll look today at His life. And we'll find out that his life was a despised life. 
And we'll look next week at his death and realize that his death was a crucified death. And then we'll look on Easter morning at the last three verses of Isaiah 53 and see the resurrection of Christ. And then after these three weeks, we'll start the Sunday after Easter going verse by verse through the epistle of Colossians. And I think that's very timely for us. We think about Colossians. Colossians is all about magnifying, exalting Jesus Christ. There's a, a verse in, um, in Colossians that says that Jesus Christ should have first place in everything. That's in your life, that's in my life, that's in the life of the church. It'll be a great reminder for us. So I encourage you even now to, to be thinking about Colossians. I, I know that in our, our bathroom we take showers and we have a CD that just goes through the Colossians. And I've been listening to Colossians for probably about a year and a half. Almost every morning, just thinking about just Paul's message there. And so that's what we will be doing three weeks from now. Now, I know in speaking with Gordy that such a change for some of you will be good. You'll say, hey, I liked it the way it was before. And that would be good. And for others of you, maybe a change disappoints you. And I, I simply ask you to embrace our plan going forward because I believe that in doing so, I'm looking out for your best interests in terms of feedback of what has caused people to grow in their spiritual life and um, the difficulties that have been experienced. We've taken so much of Scripture and it's come so hard and so fast. We're going to slow down a little bit. And so with that being said, I invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. We're going to look at the last three verses of this chapter and then the first three verses of Isaiah 53. This is the last of the four servant songs in Isaiah. Songs about the, the servant who will suffer. I want to read it before you now. I'm going to read the whole text as I will next week and then following week after just to put it in our, in our minds. It says in verse 13 of chapter 52, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand." Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem Him. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed." All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. 
And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring and he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will lot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. (laughs) Now, many of you know that I I spent several weeks in Nepal recently. And uh, one of the things that instantly impress you when you fly into Kathmandu is the tremendous beauty of the Himalayan mountains to the north. They're impressive in their height. They're inspiring in their beauty and they're intimidating in their size. They're just massive along the northern border of Nepal. Tourists come from around the world to to see them and, and to climb them. But one of the peaks towers above all of the rest. It's Mount Everest, some 29,000 feet above sea level. Right? You do the math, right? And that's almost, that's five miles more than five miles above the sea level. And it's easily the best known peak in Nepal. It's the highest point on the globe and as such has caused many people to have much intrigue about that. In fact, when people find out that I went to Nepal, they often ask you, well, so did you see Mount Everest? And I say no, because the other mountains right, eclipsed Mount Everest and I was never close enough to see it. But what I did see was impressive. And I'm sure if I'd ever see Mount Everest, it would certainly be impressive, more impressive. Well, this morning, as we open our Bibles here to Isaiah 52 and 53, we are looking at the Mount Everest of the Old Testament. Uh, I listened to my preparation to several men preaching on this passage and several men talked about how this was the Mount Everest of the Old Testament. It's the peak that rises above every text in the Old Testament because it, it looks so clearly forward at Jesus Christ. This passage is quoted more in more locations in the New Testament than any other chapter in the Bible. I counted more than 30 occasions in which this text is referred to in the New Testament. And so this morning, we have an opportunity to trek up the mountain together. And we'll take three weeks to trek up the mountain, which is about what I believe it takes to walk all the way up um, Mount Everest should you plan to go. Now, throughout our journey, there's one subject that's going to rivet our attention. It's brought up here in verse 13 of chapter 52. It is my servant. My servant. The identity of this servant has been a question. It's been asked many times down through the ages. In fact, even the prophets themselves who wrote better than they knew would think long and hard about who is this servant. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 10 and 11, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, these very prophets who prophesied and who wrote, they are the ones who made careful search and inquiries 
seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Think about it. These prophets, inspired by the Holy Spirit, were writing of the sufferings and the glories of Christ and they didn't know who it was. They, they sought it out to find out what person or, or what time God was indicating that this would take place. I remember seeing a great illustration of perhaps what these prophets felt. I, I knew a man who had amassed, I think, the, the largest independent Bible collection in the world. He owned all these Bibles, had Bibles real old, had some newer Bibles, had uh, different kinds of Bibles. Had, in fact, I remember even one Bible was called the Adultery Bible because it says you shall commit adultery. Because somebody took that out. I remember he had a martyr's Bible. He had a Bible that was like stained this purple color. And the issue was that this was the Bible of a, of a martyr who was burned at the stake. And it was dipped in his blood and thrown in the fire. And that then was you know, rescued out of... But that was the blood of the martyr. It was on his own Bible. And you could even see in this Bible just you know, written notes about you know, things that this man or woman had studied in the Scripture. But I remember one... One Bible this man had, it was a scroll. It was a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And, you know, it was in pretty good shape, being as old as it was. It was kind of like a typically used Bible. But there was one portion of the Bible that was really wrinkled and, and, ta- and ta- tattered and, and worn. And you know what it was? It's right here in Isaiah 53. Because I think as the, the rabbis even looked and know and, and, and say, what is this? You know, in Isaiah 53, of all the chapters in all of Isaiah, has so much intrigue. The words in that, that scroll was the object of much study. And I don't know who it was. Perhaps it was a rabbi trying to figure out how it couldn't be Jesus. Maybe it was some, some Christian really looking and investigating. But for us, we see the glories of Christ here. But there's plenty else in Isaiah that we can look at. So who is this servant? You ask a Jewish rabbi today and do you know who they'll say most likely the servant is? They'll say, well, of course it's Israel. I mean, don't you know your Bibles? Don't you know Isaiah, they would say? I mean, they would turn you back to Isaiah chapter 44, verses 1 and 2. And they say, listen to what this says. Isaiah 44, verses 1 and 2 says, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant. And Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord, who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. And they say, look, at Jacob is a servant. Israel is the servant. And, and might return here to Isaiah 53 and speak about, well, think about the sufferings that Israel has experienced down through the ages. And certainly a rabbi could speak of many, 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 many times in which the nation of Israel suffered and even in recent generations of the Holocaust. Just tremendous sufferings. I said, doesn't it make it clear that Isaiah 53 is speaking about Israel? And it might sound convincing on the surface, but the difficulty is that such interpretations of the suffering of Israel, they don't, they don't match with Isaiah 53. I mean, first of all, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, is innocent. Verse 9 here says that he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But that doesn't square at all with Isaiah's view of the nation of Israel when he called them a sinful nation weighed down with iniquity. Isaiah 1 verse 4. And also you read through here Isaiah 53 and you see the 
The suffering servant was a willing sacrifice. He himself laid himself down, right? Verse 12 says he poured out himself to death. He was a willing sufferer, but the nation of Israel has never been the willing sufferer. They've never willfully said, oh, Lord, destroy us. No, it's always been as a result of their sin. And when they've been destroyed, they've cried out to God, help us. But furthermore, the servant, suffering servant of Isaiah 53 offered himself as an atonement. In other words, when this servant suffered and died, he, he redeemed others, right? Verse 4 says that he bore our griefs. Verse 5 says that he was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed for our iniquities in our place. We see in verse 6 that it's the iniquity of us all had fallen on him. And so it's an atonement sacrifice. And none of these things, whether it's being an innocent servant, whether a willing sacrifice or an atoning sacrifice, none of that's true of Israel, even in the least degree. These are only a few objections. There are many, many more that you could pull out here of Isaiah chapter 53. And the rabbis know this. And so they search frantically for some other solutions. And so even they have suggested it's Isaiah himself. But you know what? You can look through. Isaiah had the similar difficulties. I mean, Isaiah wasn't innocent. He stood before the Lord and said, Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips. Nor was Isaiah's sufferings in any way atoning for the sins of others. Isaiah would never have claimed that I have borne your griefs and that I have carried your iniquities and that I was crushed for you. And so the age-old question is, who is the servant? Unfortunately, the Bible answers that question for us. If you believe the Bible, if you believe the New Testament, you know who the servant is. We aren't left in the dark. Maybe you remember the story that, that Luke gives in Acts chapter 8. There was an Ethiopian eunuch on his way back to Ethiopia. And, and he was in his chariot reading his scriptures. And uh, the Lord told Philip to run up and go to talk to him. And, and, and when uh, Philip came up, here was uh, the eunuch with a scroll probably. They didn't have a book. And do you know what passage he was reading? He was reading this very passage. In fact, it's verses 7 and 8. Here's this Ethiopian eunuch, right? Perhaps a God follower of some type, traveling all the way from Ethiopia, getting in Jerusalem, looking at the religion there, trying to figure it out a little bit, and, and reading this. And he's reading like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? And this eunuch was looking at this and, and being puzzled about it. And Philip said to him, do you understand what you are reading? And the eunuch's response was great. He, he said, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself? Or someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from the Scripture, he preached Jesus to him. He preached Jesus to him. And that's my aim this morning. I want to preach Jesus to you from the Scriptures. Over the next few weeks as we walk through this passage, you'll discern that Isaiah is talking about Jesus. It doesn't take rocket science to see that. We'll see in verses 13 to 15 his exaltation and his humiliation. Exactly what Philippians 2 speaks about. In the first three verses of Isaiah 53, right, we'll, we'll see his rejection. In verses 4 through 6, we'll see his crucifixion. 
In 7 through 9, even we see his burial. And in 12 through 10 through 12, we'll see his resurrection. And they're perfect verses for us to consider as we think about celebrating Easter this year in just a few days. So let's look at Jesus. Let's begin in verse 13 with his exaltation. His exaltation. It says, My servant will prosper, and he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. That's very interesting about this verse. This verse begins with the end of the life of Jesus. After He endured the cross and was raised from the dead, Jesus Christ was highly exalted. Philippians 2, verse 9 says that God bestowed upon Jesus the name which is above every name. And so exalted is Christ that there will be a day where every knee bows to Him and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's what verse 13 is speaking about. About how high and exalted and prosperous Jesus was. And what it says here that Jesus will prosper, it means that He will have success. He will set out to accomplish all that He has attempted to do. And we see that everything that Jesus set out to accomplish, He, he accomplished. Toward the end of His life, Jesus prayed in John 17 to the Father. He said, O Father, I have glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work which You have given Me to do. I've accomplished the work You've given Me to do. And the work that God the Father had given Jesus to do was to condescend from the glories of heaven to take on human flesh and to live a perfect life. And then eventually to die as an atoning sacrifice for sins on the cross. And the last thing Jesus said on the cross, He said, it's finished. Right? He said, I've done it all. He prospered. What He set out to do, He accomplished. Descending from intimate fellowship with God to the lonely darkness of a cold tomb, only then to be exalted once again. That's the life of Jesus. And today, we know that Jesus is high and lifted up and greatly exalted. In fact, should you enter heaven today, there'd be one thing that would capture your attention. It is Jesus Christ upon the throne. Perhaps you've had the experience before of going, say, to a matinee theater or maybe being downstairs in a, in a dark room and then suddenly walking outside and, and to the sunshine in the afternoon. Right? And what immediately captures your attention is the blazing sun and you just notice it in your eyes. You've got to close your eyes because it's so bright. That's what heaven is like. You get in and there's a glorious Christ there and you're blinded by who that is upon the throne. And then you realize it's the Lamb, but He's the center of attention. When you walk out on that day, right? it's not the sidewalk that grabs your attention. It's not the bird tweeting in the, in the tree that captures your attention. It's the sun that's glaring down upon your eyes that hurts. That is heaven. And the events we read of heaven... Such are the focus of everyone's attention. There is the Lamb who was slain and the Lamb who purchased people for God. And in Isaiah, it's interesting about these words about being high and lifted up. Isaiah had already used these words before. Can you think about when he used them before? High and lifted up. Can you think? Isaiah chapter 6. Exact same words. Room and nasa. Room just means to be high and nasa means to be lifted up. Those are the very two words that Isaiah used to describe the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted when the train of His robe was filling the temple. 
And when Isaiah described that, he described the seraphim who stood above him, having six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And so you've got these angelic beings circling around the throne. And you remember what they cried out, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And you remember the earthquake that took place? The foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. I mean, you get this picture of just a, a magnificent, loud, shaking scene of the one who's upon the throne. It's a glorious scene in heaven. It is the Lord high and lifted up. And then you think about, well, who is that? When you go to the 12th chapter of John's epistle, we're told that this scene is describing Jesus Christ on the throne. Jesus Christ is exalted today. But this servant passage also speaks about his humiliation in verse 14. <clears throat> verse 14, we read this. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. You know, and this is one of the things that makes the life of Jesus so intriguing. That he was so high and so exalted and yet he, he became so low and so debased. And of course, you know that life of Jesus came to the end, came to an end upon a Roman cross. And I've told you before that a, that a cross was invented with a specific purpose in mind to make death as painful and as long as possible. As a, a victim would hang frequently for days upon the cross, experiencing excruciating pain the whole time. And during this time, I was just thinking about what happens to somebody if they, they hang outside upon a cross. Their, their body's going to become dehydrated. <clears throat> They're going to be sweating out body fluids. There's going to be blood that's going to come forth, right? The muscles are going to cramp. The exposure of the, the elements, you know, I think all of these things would combine together to disfigure the dying so that in some cases, I think a dying man upon the cross would be difficult to recognize. Perhaps you've seen people who are in their dying days. Sometimes they're hard to recognize. And I think of someone being crucified upon the cross, certainly that's the case. And verse 14 tells us, predicts that that would happen to Jesus. In fact, it says, His appearance was marred more than any man. And it is reasonable to expect that Jesus was beyond recognition upon the cross. That should you just merely walk up to Jesus and see that, who, who is that? You wouldn't know unless you were told or unless you, you looked upon there that says, oh, King of the Jews, oh, maybe that was Jesus because he'd be so disfigured. And, and even I think about the crucifixion. Before Jesus was crucified, what did he face? He faced Roman scourging in the praetorium. In fact, it says in Matthew 27, verse 27, that the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him like a pack of wolves around their prey. All of these soldiers and these men were around him. They began to whip him and they began to beat him. And then you know what they did with this, this reed that they placed in his hand? They took that out and began hitting him in the head. And you think about it, he's got a crown of thorns upon him, being hit in the head. The blood that's oozing from his face is immense. And when they hit him on the head, I don't think it means just they hit him in the back part of the head. I think they hit him on the top of the head to drive the thorns in there. I think they hit him in the ear. I think they hit him in a face. Repeatedly, in fact, Mark adds that they kept beating his head with the reed. Mark 15, verse 19. 
You ever seen a heavyweight boxer after a 15-round boxing match? What their face looks like? You haven't because they put sunglasses on so as to hide all of the the swollenness and all the beating. And I think as Jesus was beaten with a a reed in his face, certainly his face could have been marred, as verse 14 says, more than any man. Add to that the the fact that even the stress of what Jesus knew would suffer caused his face to drip sweat of blood even before he stood before Pilate. And I think his face was disfigured. He was beyond recognition. And here, hundreds of years before Jesus was so disfigured, Isaiah had predicted that this would happen. It was part of his humiliation. His exaltation is where he is now. His humiliation is where he he lived. Verse 15 tells about his proclamation. It says, He will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what what had not been told them they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. The term translated sprinkle here is often used to describe the activity of a priest with a sacrifice. The the Old Testament priest would would take the blood and sometimes sprinkle it on the people. Or sometimes even sprinkle it on the priest that he was anointing. Sometimes he'd sprinkle it upon the altar. Or sometimes he'd sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. But always it had in mind this um, connotation of sacrifice and cleansing. That's the picture. And so as such, even here in verse 15, it speaks about sprinkling the nations. It gives a picture of what the blood of Christ will do. It's His blood that sprinkles our conscience to make our consciences clean. It's the blood of Jesus that purifies us from sin. Right? We sing before, right? What can wash away my sin? Kids, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away our sin. And Peter speaks even also about sprinkling with the blood of Jesus. In his epistle, he writes to those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ, and here it is, be sprinkled with His blood, to be sanctified, to be purified with His blood. But notice here in verse 15 that the the promise of sprinkling goes to many nations. And here it again is, Again, we see in the Old Testament the the anticipation of the work of the Messiah exceeding out to the world, far beyond just Isaiah or just Israel and Judah. It's going to go out to the world. It's going to go to many nations. In fact, global proclamation of the gospel is celebrated in heaven. Do you know that? I I described to you before when they get to heaven and they, they worship the slain lamb. Listen to what they said. They said, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain, and you purchased for God, with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. In other words, it's the blood of Jesus that is proclaimed to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It reaches beyond Israel. It reaches beyond England. It reaches beyond the United States of America. Wherever there is a tribe... There will be a representative in heaven worshiping the Lamb. Wherever there's a tongue, there will be a tongue representing that, giving praise and glory and honor to God in heaven. Wherever there's a people, there will be a representative of that people worshiping the Lamb in heaven. Wherever there is a nation, 
they will be a representation of that nation worshiping Jesus Christ in that final day. And Isaiah anticipated that when he said this, is that he will sprinkle many nations. And in these nations, it's very interesting what's said here. It's the, the kings who take notice of what's happening. It's the governmental leaders that say something's going on here in our nation. I don't understand it. I've not quite been told it. But they see it and they understand it. They've not heard it, but they know that something's happening in their nation. I think what it's talking about is this. I think it's talking about the effect that the gospel has upon a nation when the church comes to believe and embrace Christ from nothing. I mean, kings and governmental rulers take note and and they say, what is happening among our people? And a great example of that happened to me, I saw in Nepal. It's a Hindu kingdom of the world. It's the only Hindu kingdom of the world. And as such, there is great ignorance of the gospel in Nepal. By current statistics, a number of Christians hover somewhere about 2%. And yet, governmental leaders are beginning to notice something happening in the nation. They're beginning to notice these Christians. And and recently, many of the prominent leaders of the Christian church in Nepal were summoned to come and speak with the governmental authorities. The government was seeking to find out what they could about this Christianity that was so growing in their nation. I I spoke with a man. His name's Dr. Rongon. I showed you his picture last week. Maybe you remember his story. He came into Nepal when there were a hundred believers in Nepal. And he has seen God bless and prosper that church to several hundred thousand believers in Nepal. But being one of the rocks of the church in Nepal, he was summoned before the governmental authorities to basically give account and and to tell them and inform them of what this Christianity is about. And he, he discussed with us a little bit about how that interaction went. And he said he met with an official who had been assigned the job, he said this was the assigned job from from the government, was to find out all that he could about Christianity and all that he could about the implications of Christianity upon the government. I mean, they were pretty confused. He didn't know. And so, this man asked fundamental questions to Dr. Rongong like this. What is Christianity? How do you become a Christian? What are Christians trying to do? Why are they so aggressively trying to spread their religion? How do Christians view the government? Where does their funding come from? And this man, as he told his account, boy, God gave him great wisdom in his words, shared the gospel clearly with this man, spoke with a grace and peace to describe of what a Christian is, what they're trying to do, why they're trying to spread their religion. He said, well, suppose I'm a doctor and I have a a medicine that can cure your problems. Won't I try to give you that solution to your problems? And just thereby explaining, that's why we speak to others. That's why we spread the gospel. But, but the reason why the government was asking these questions is because I believe the message of the Messiah has been sprinkled in Nepal. It's not that the gospel has flooded Nepal. It's the gospel has sprinkled Nepal. And the king has taken note because he's seen and understood some things though he's not been told and though he's not heard. That's what was promised with the Messiah. As his name would be proclaimed would sprinkle many nations. Well, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 53. We see his reception. His reception says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
You know, this is a rhetorical question that lends to a discouraging answer. Basically, it's this. It's, it's not many who have believed the message. And it's not many who have received Him. In John's prologue, in John chapter 1, we read that Jesus came into His own and those who were His own did not receive Him. What an amazing thing that is. Right? The one who is exalted above all others, the one who will be revealed to the nation was not received by His own people. And that's really, by the way, the picture we get back in verse 15 of sprinkling the nations. In, in other words, His life is going to have an effect, but it's not going to have a great effect upon all. When summertime comes, kids, and you, and you take your garden hose and you, and you hook it up to, to your house and you stretch your garden hose out, what do you put on the other end? You put a sprinkler on the other end. And is there a difference between being sprinkled and running through the sprinkler and swimming? Yeah, what's the difference? What's the difference? In one, you just get soaking drenched. Everybody's there. In the other, you know, you, you feel some drops all around. And that's the picture, I think, that uh, Isaiah is trying to say. Right? The, the countries, the nations are going to get wet. But, oh, they're not going to get doused. Though the gospel will be embraced in every nation, it will not be embraced entirely in every nation. Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, said that in that final day, many will come from the east and from the west and the north and the south to recline at the table of the kingdom of God. But it's not the many who will be gathered. It's the few who will be saved, is what Jesus says. And I think that speaks about the reception that many don't receive this message of the Messiah. And it's just sprinkled in many nations. And I guess even at this point, I give some application to you. I say, have you received this message? When, when we say, who has believed our message? Does your arm go up and say, I've believed it, I've received it? Or are you lukewarm and just say, well, whatever. I encourage you, exhort you to receive it. And unless you think that though there are few that receive it, don't ever think this number is minimal. There will be enough gospel light to have rulers of nations take notice and even 2% of the population is enough to make their impact known. But the question rightly comes, and why are there so few? Why is it only a sprinkling rather than a downpour? Which there are at times, certainly. We in our country witnessed a downpour in the 1700s, the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening as well. But the, the, the typical way in which God has worked is sprinkled many nations. Why so few? Well, I think there's so few because verse 2, my fifth point this morning, speaks about his unattraction. I couldn't come up with a better word that rhymes with shun. Unattraction is the best I could come up with, right? It says, He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. In other words, when the Messiah would come, He'd come with an unassuming presence. People didn't look at Jesus and instantly say, Oh, it's God! And bow to the knee and worship Him. That wasn't their response. Because Jesus didn't have an awe-inspiring appearance. He wasn't like King Saul, who was a choice and handsome man who stood from his shoulders up taller than any of the people. Jesus wouldn't have been selected first as a teammate on the playground. The girls at school wouldn't have voted him as Mr. Handsome. 
In fact, when you read the Gospel accounts, we know very little about his physical appearance. And I think this is the case because there's nothing particularly impressive about his physical appearance. Now, I don't think that Jesus was ugly and repulsive. I mean, I, I think as a result of his sinlessness, I think certainly there were some impacts upon his physical appearance that certainly was, didn't turn people away in horror. But I don't think there was anything exceptionally beautiful about the Messiah. I believe that Jesus was really one of the hoi polloi. He just mixed in well with the picture. He was a common man. In fact, that's what it says. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. There was nothing in Jesus that by His physical nature would cause us to be attracted to Him. Even something interesting also is that though the Scriptures are silent about His physical appearance, He was one who was repulsed. The Gospel accounts are full of the disrespect that Jesus received. Right, Verse 2 says He was like a root out of parched ground. In other words, Jesus bloomed and blossomed in land that was unfavorable for crops to grow. Yesterday we had a discussion at our house. SR was reading something about um, South Dakota. Lance, you might know something about this, about South Dakota and the Badlands. And he's kind of, why are they called the Badlands? Why are they called the Badlands, Lance? <laughs> Nothing's going to grow there, right? In fact, uh, I did some research on the internet, so I might, you know, have a little up on you on this one. But Badlands got its name from fur trappers who came to the area in the early 1800s. They called it Badlands because of the complete lack of drinkable water in the region. There you know. But. Jesus grew up in what might easily be called the spiritual badlands, raised in Nazareth, which had a terrible reputation among the Israelites. In fact, when Nathanael initially heard Philip tell him that Jesus from Nazareth was the Messiah, we found him. Right? You remember his response? He said, can any good thing come from Nazareth? That was the perception of Nazareth. In fact, when Jesus first preached in his hometown, right, you can get a feel for why Nazareth had such a, a bad reputation. Right? Initially, the people were surprised at his preaching ability. All were speaking well of him and, and wondering at his, his gracious words which are falling from his lips and saying, is this not Joseph's son? How, how can this be? This is Joseph's son. How can he speak? Because it doesn't work here in Nazareth. Those who knew Jesus from his childhood would never have guessed that Jesus could say such elegant things. And yet, soon afterwards, the reason why Nazareth was so hated and despised is because how they received Jesus' first sermon. When Jesus preached, they rejected his message and tried to kill him. And Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own household. Those who knew Jesus best and could have seen Jesus and could have been attracted to him say, won over by his personality or, or seen his appearance or seen his stately form, <clears throat> those are the ones who rejected him. And I just say the Messiah is one who would grow up in a most unlikely place for anything to grow. He grew up in a spiritual badlands in the city of Nazareth. And then in verse 3, we see perhaps how Jesus was received. I'm calling this his rejection. We've seen his exaltation in verse 13. His humiliation in verse 14. His proclamation in verse 15. His reception in verse 1. 
His unattraction in verse 2, and finally now verse 3, His rejection. Verse 2 speaks about the appearance of Jesus. But verse 3 speaks about the response of the people to Jesus. And you know the response of people to Jesus is not good. In fact, it's terrible. In fact, it's awful. In fact, it's horrible how they responded to Jesus. We read this, that He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem Him. Well, in Nepal a few weeks ago, I was again reminded of the wickedness of the caste system that exists in Hinduism. Perhaps you're familiar with this. I trust you are. But depending upon which family you're born into, you're either born into a high caste or a low caste or a medium caste or a medium low caste or a medium high caste. And all of social society depends upon where you were born because they believe that if you did something bad, you're going to come back low caste. If you did something good, then you become back high caste. And if you have high caste, you have privileges in the country. Like able to get into schools, like chosen preference over a job, like you can go places, you can be respected. But if you're born into a low caste, then a lot of those privileges are taken away. You're a second class citizen. Certain opportunities are just not available to you. And the upper caste will look upon you as a second class citizen and fear even touching you. Because should an upper class person touch a lower class person, they need to go to the Hindu priest to pay some money have a ceremonial cleansing, and then he'd be free again. All this is, is legalized discrimination which calms the conscience. It says, I can discriminate against people, and that is right. It is a wicked thing, but when Jesus walked the earth, he was considered to be low caste, if you will. They considered him to be a second-class citizen. The Pharisees accused Jesus of being born of fornication because he was born out of wedlock. And that put him off. You're the product of sin. The Pharisees accused Jesus of being a Samaritan who was like the lowest caste of Jesus' day. Lower even than the Nazarites. He's a Samaritan. These Jews who have have, uh, married foreign cultures as they were told not to. The Pharisees accused Jesus of having a demon and, and, and so deluded were they that they couldn't listen to the voice of reason. He said, now listen, guys. If, if, I, if I got a demon, how am I casting out demons? It doesn't work. Kingdom divided against itself can't stand. But they still continue to say, oh, he's got a demon. They called Jesus a gluttonous man and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. The high caste of Jesus' day despised him as a wretched, sinful, dirty tax collector, even though none of this was true. I mean, he wasn't born of fornication. He was virgin born, right? He wasn't a Samaritan. He wasn't demon possessed. He wasn't a glutton. He wasn't a sinner. And yet all these things piled upon him. As a result of that, verse 3 says, people didn't esteem him. Rather, he was forsaken of men. He didn't get the respect that the second member of the Trinity deserved. I know that Jesus was Almighty God, but in His humanness, I'm sure the name-calling and the rejection that He experienced was probably difficult to take. Have you ever been accused of something that wasn't true? A story about you fabricated someplace? I've had some things told to me in recent days that's like, that is not even close to true. 
I know how it feels. I know how it feels. Deep hurt in the soul. And that's what Jesus experienced as well. Though His perfect God, lies about Him abounded and people ridiculed Him and hated Him and despised Him because of these lies which weren't even true. He was a man of sorrows who knew what rejection was like. He was acquainted with grief, especially grief of false accusation. And ultimately, you realize this, it was false accusation which led to his death. I mean, isn't it? A false, he was accused of treason, though he was the model citizen. And it was lies and fabrications of all the high priests trying to get some false witness to come against him. And ultimately, the only thing found against him was false. And Jesus chose to keep his mouth quiet like a lamb. And I can barely imagine, I think about the grief that he experienced from being rejected. I mean, you think about his life. He heals ten lepers. And, and they go away and only one of them comes back and says, Jesus, thank you. I worship you. Nine of them are just ungrateful. I, I think of how on the one time he fed thousands of people. Thousands of people who, upon hearing his message, they all deserted him. I mean, I'm trying to figure out how that would be. <coughs> all deserting him. In fact, his close friend betrayed him with a kiss. So many were leaving. And then one day after he fed the multitudes that he asked Peter, do you want to go away also? His disciples said, no, 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 we'll stand with you. We'll even die with you. And yet, did they stand with him and die? They fell asleep rather than praying for him in his hour of greatest need. They all scattered and fled from him, though they'd pledged to be faithful unto death. I mean, surely it would have hurt when the Romans were beating upon his body, preparing to nail him to a cross. And yet, I believe that such pains may have been eclipsed by the pain of rejection that Jesus faced. I mean, the picture that Isaiah paints of the rejection of Jesus is terrifying. It says here in verse 3 that he was like one from whom men hide their face. Imagine with me now a man who's fighting right now for the United States over in Iraq. In the course of his duty, right, he happens upon a suicide bomber who, who drives up in a car and explodes the car. And this, this um, army man was close by at this checkpoint. The, the bomb set off and instant burns to all the face. Third degree burns on the face and is sent back to America and had plastic surgery and trying to restore what could even be close to calling something a face, but the scarring is so bad that his face is forever marred. Now think about what this man would be like in public. What would happen to him? Forever this man would be exposed to the stares of strangers who would gaze upon... Now, is that a mask or is that a face or what is that? Only on October 31st could he go out in public well. Just a face marred. Children... Would, would see him and maybe even turn and run away. Mommy! Mommy! At the, the horror of the face. As if they'd just seen Frankenstein. Even some adults, maybe at first sight, would ooh, wince and maybe look away. At, well, such an existence, I'm trying to imagine, that would be a terrible existence, wouldn't it be? You can barely show your face. Maybe it's to be like the Phantom of the Opera and wear some kind of mask over your head so to, so as to hide the tremendously ugliness of what was caused by that explosion. But you know what? That's a bit similar to what happened with Jesus. It says He was like 
one from whom men hide their face. I think that Isaiah's trying to get it how shunned and rejected Jesus was by his society. That is the life of Jesus. I've tried to sum it all up with the title of my message this morning that he was despised. But you know, here's the thing. And here's where the good news comes in. Apart from being despised and hated and rejected and crucified, Jesus would never have been able to save us. It's the transgression of the Jewish people to reject their Messiah and to kill their Messiah that ultimately brought salvation to the Gentiles. Ultimately, that brought it to us. And next week, as we look at verses 4 through 9, we're going to look into these things more deeply. And I would encourage you even to think ahead and to read over these Scriptures and to pray that God would take these truths and convict them to our heart as we look upon Christ. And I just say this morning, boy, what, what other hope do you have? You don't have hope of your own righteousness, your own goodness. The only hope that we have is in the servant who suffered for us. You know, in a little bit, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this is exactly what we're celebrating. We are celebrating the fact that He was despised and forsaken and rejected so that we might not be despised and forsaken and rejected of man. In fact, even if you look, just to give you a preview of, of next week, verse 5, it says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. <clears throat> he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourging we are healed. I know I'll mention this next week, but even Isaiah prophesies here of being pierced through before crucifixion was even invented. And the whole purpose of this, of Jesus being crushed and despised, was for us. It's for our well-being that these things fell upon Him. And so I'm going to ask you just to bow your head and even think about just the, the crucifixion, about the the life of Jesus, that though He is exalted today, He was humbled. And He was unattractive. And He was rejected of men. And yet, this is the One who we worship and adore because He has become so glorious to us. So, bow your heads. Let me pray together. Oh God, I would pray as I have sought this morning to preach Jesus to us is that we might think of Jesus and be reminded in many ways of who He was and what He was about and God, the life that He lived, how it wasn't a, an easy life, how it was a, a very, very difficult life. And yet, the life that He lived, He lived choosing willfully for our well-being. He took the iniquity of us all upon Him. And the... The even greater fact is it's all of His grace to us. So we can't earn, God, the fact of what Jesus did. We can simply believe on Him and embrace Him. And so, God, I pray this morning that we as a church at Rock Valley Bible Church would believe the report and, and we'd embrace Jesus Christ as clearly displayed here even 700 years before His birth. God, those who would refuse to acknowledge that this is speaking about Jesus truly have hard hearts and truly have blind eyes. I pray You'd open them. But for us who see, I pray that we would embrace these things lovingly and longing to see Christ glorified in us. Because though He is lovely and fairer than ten thousands 
And though He shines purer and brighter, yet there was a season which He was hated and despised. But that was for our salvation. And so, Lord, even as I think about the Lord's Supper and celebrating the Lord's Supper, I pray that You cause us to look deep within. God, cause us to look at ourselves, even as the Scripture says we ought to examine ourselves before we eat and before we drink the cup. God, that we ought to confess our sins, what we can, to You. We ought to seek reconciliation with others. We ought to be humble and low. And so, God, I pray that You would do that in our hearts now. God, because this that we do is merely a a proclamation that our trust is in You. And so, how can we live in a way that's not pleasing to You and yet still proclaim our trust is in You? I, I pray that You would... God, cause us to see the path isn't perfection from sins that we've committed. It's confession of those sins and a desire then to, to live in your ways coming in the future. So help us in these days to see our sin. God, to confess it. God, to pledge before you to, to, to pray for others and to help others and to serve others and to love others. God, in fact, I even think in 1 Corinthians 11, we often go to it this time of the Lord's Supper. It's when people were unloving. God, as a result of the sin in the congregation, Lord, You killed people in the congregation because their own selfishness rather than humility looking after the, the good of others. So, God, I pray at Rock Valley Bible Church we would be those to, to seek others and seek the good of others and seek Your glory above all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before the men come up, you know, a time of communion is often a, a good time to communicate just with the church. And, and I say at Rock Valley Bible Church, we've been through some difficult times. Uh, some families have left the church, and I've asked Gordon.